Welcome back to Love Letters and Mixtapes. I am so glad you're here. This week, we are talking about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. And I know that just that title alone is probably enough to make some people swipe and head on to the next episode because so many of us assume that if we don't immediately believe that something relates to us, then we really don't have any reason to learn about it. And my experience is pretty much the exact opposite of that. Anytime I think to myself, oh, I don't need that lesson or that bit of information or that growth experience, it really turns out to be exactly what I needed and I had absolutely no idea. So if you heard the title and thought, "Mm, I don't really need this episode, it might just be exactly what you need. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. For me personally, I remember, even back to my freshman year of high school, that I was pulled out of class by a very perceptive, albeit not persuasive, guidance counselor who recommended that I attend some support group for kids whose parents had a drinking problem. And I remember immediately thinking, I don't have a problem. The whole world is my problem. Everyone else needs a support group. I'm fine. Every adult in my life is difficult. They need help, not me. If everyone would just calm down, I'd be fine. Leave me alone. That's a pretty standard teenage response, and I'm sure I was a little bit nicer about it, but it's not shocking that I responded that way. Because I immediately felt ashamed when this guidance counselor pointed out what she saw in me that I wasn't ready to see. I felt less than. I felt kind of naked, if that makes sense. I felt like a failure. I felt like I was weak. And I felt as if there was really something wrong with me and that everyone could tell. Like there was a blinking neon sign above my head and my only job in life was to distract everyone so they couldn't see it. And I would do this by being good, by being quiet, by being invisible, by getting good grades and just simply not being in anyone's way. My internalized message was make yourself small and everything will be okay. And that's the story, right? That's the adult child of an alcoholic story that we are about to dive into and the one that we don't realize that we tell ourselves until we learn more about the family disease of alcoholism and addiction. And at that age, I had no idea that I was already programmed to play chess and think five moves ahead and anticipate and catastrophize what everyone else was thinking and manipulate myself into being whatever would protect me from being seen or noticed. 
So I said, thanks, but no thanks to that guidance counselor. And I had what is referred to as contempt prior to investigation because I literally didn't know anything about this support group. I didn't know any of the other kids in it. I didn't know what this person saw in me to make her think I needed support. And I definitely didn't dare ask. I just immediately felt seen, was uncomfortable, and said, oh, no, not for me. And I always think about that experience whenever I'm talking to a friend, a loved one, or even a new client or group member, and they begin to tell me about themselves without realizing that they have told me about themselves. And that's what I want to explore here today, whether you yourself are an adult child of an alcoholic, an addict, or some other type of family dysfunction, or whether your partner or friend is, or if you've just been impacted by the family disease of alcoholism and addiction in some way. This whole conversation is about sharing experience and hope. It's not about shame or judgment or even facts. Like I'm not pointing my finger in your face. I'm just telling you what I've experienced, what I have learned over the years. Because I know that there are some people, even in my own life, who simply don't believe in addiction, which is definitely a fun perspective, but they simply don't. They believe that it all boils down to some moral failing, and if someone just had stronger self-will, all would be fine. Never in my life have I found that to be the foundation of any diagnosis, but I'm also not here to argue. I'm just offering my perspective and what I've learned over the years by working with these populations and doing the work myself. I would also never want to make anyone feel the way that I did when I was invited to that support group in high school. I felt very shamed. Um, And it wasn't really her fault. I feel that this is sometimes a difficult topic to broach with people. But at the end of the day, shame is not what this is about. This is about gathering information about a topic that we are taught to never discuss. Because addiction and alcoholism are taboo enough, right? They're all very stigmatized and hush-hush, almost as if the less we learn about them or pretend not to notice them, the more they'll go away. And we would never do this with any other diagnosis. If a parent was diagnosed with, let's say, cancer and a particular type of cancer, you would do as much research as possible to understand the prognosis, the treatments, everything that was available to them. But when it comes to addiction, very often we don't do that. We drop into our feelings or our personal experiences and we step away from treating it or addressing it or viewing it in a way that might be helpful. You know, there's a belief that these things affect other people and we won't ever have to navigate something like that. And to take it even further, think about how taboo it is to be the family member or partner of someone struggling with addiction or an adult who grew up in a home experiencing all the side effects of having a caregiver struggle with their addiction or recovery. If we are not encouraged to talk about addiction itself, there's really no room to talk about how we experience all of these conflicting thoughts and feelings around someone else's addiction and what impact that has had on us. 
So let's let all of that go. That's what I want more than anything in this discussion today. That's my invitation to you as you listen to this episode. Let go of what you think you know about addiction and alcoholism and how it affects an entire family. I promise you that you can pick up all of your thoughts and feelings and beliefs as soon as this episode ends, and then you can send me an email and tell me I'm wrong. No big deal. But for now, let's begin with a blank page and an awareness of how often our stories and unconscious programming impact our ability to remain honest, open, and willing to receive information or another perspective. I'm pretty much telling you to not be the 14-year-old version of me instantly putting up a wall when a guidance counselor noticed something about me that I was not ready to face. At that time in my life, it felt a lot easier to just accept that there was something wrong with me. Either my brain wasn't wired correctly or my nervous system just wouldn't work or, you know, it felt like most of the time that everyone else had received an instruction book on how to navigate life. And I just didn't. I can recall vividly how it always felt as if I was hanging onto the floor for dear life while simultaneously trying to hold a mask up on my face so you wouldn't see all the things that I thought were wrong with me. And I felt all of those things well into adulthood and just developed really powerful coping mechanisms and or character defects so you wouldn't see them and you wouldn't really be able to see me. And that's not that unique when you think about what other adult children of alcoholics experience. So let's begin at the beginning. What is alcoholism and addiction? Alcoholism and addiction is when someone can no longer control their use of alcohol or another substance or behavior, compulsively abusing this behavior or substance, despite its negative consequences to their physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, and financial well-being. What does it mean to be an adult child of an alcoholic or a dysfunctional family? I've had a pretty wide-ranging experience in my profession, and no matter the setting, there's always a great deal of conflict around the term dysfunctional family. I've had friends, partners, colleagues, clients who have all said, That's a stupid phrase. Every family is dysfunctional. Anyone who uses that term is just whining. And just based on my own experience as a clinician, an interventionist, and as someone who is raised in a home that would definitely be described as dysfunctional, I have to tell you that this perspective lacks compassion and nuance and an understanding that other people experience things beyond what you have experienced. I understand it's a challenging term because it almost asks us to view things through a singular black and white gaze of this family is correct and this one is incorrect. But I don't see it that way. The reason I use it, and I could change my mind tomorrow about this, but the reason I use it is because I'm less interested in a semantic debate and I'm more interested in allowing people the space and trust and room to breathe. So that they can process their own trauma. Not every family is dysfunctional in my view. We are human and we're here to have a human experience and make human mistakes with our human families. But that is not the same as intense harm, trauma, and dysfunction. And it's those things that I'm talking about here today. 
there are specific groups that offer services and support to the population I'm talking about today. And Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families is a 12-step program of people who grew up in dysfunctional homes, whether that means a caregiver or someone else in the home is navigating mental illness, abuse, or any kind of addiction, including alcohol, drugs, food, gambling, and deaths, or sex addiction, or just so much more. The list could go on. But these groups meet regularly to share about their shared experience of growing up in an environment where abuse, neglect, and trauma infected and affected everyone in the house. Because these things still affect us as adults and influence how we deal with all aspects of our lives. And I know it seems obvious, but it's actually often really overlooked that the purpose of 12-step programs is to work your way through each of the 12 steps toward a healthier way of life. Very often, there's so much confusion about healing modalities, and 12-step programs are not immune to that confusion. Because it's easy to imagine that an adult children of alcoholics and dysfunction meeting is just a bunch of whiny adults sitting in a room complaining about their parents. I have had more people tell me that that was their perception of it prior to even attending or learning about it. That's how they felt that that's how it functioned. In the past, I've always received something of the same response when I would invite a client who was seeing me for crisis counseling to join in any of the support groups that were created for people navigating exactly what they were experiencing. They would tell me that it would be too depressing or embarrassing to listen to a bunch of people talk about the same things. But the fact is that no good support group is like that because there's power in healing and processing things in a group setting Because you hear things differently when someone says what you were thinking or relays a story of some out-of-control behavior similar to something that you've also done. We see ourselves differently when we are seen. And we pick up on tools that we see are effective when others in the group use them as well. And it's limiting to believe that the only discussion in an adult child group is childhood. Because it's very much about how our childhood experiences affect how we communicate and make decisions and interact in our daily adult life. So often, how we do one thing is how we do most things. And if you are racked by anxiety in one area of your life, chances are you might begin to see the effects of it in other areas of your life. In my own experience, it's much less about pointing fingers at the alcoholic or the dysfunctional person in our lives, and it's more about taking accountability for ourselves, our health, our boundaries, our wants, our needs, and our happiness and healing. The adult child of alcoholics and dysfunction groups provide a safe, non-judgmental environment that allows people to grieve their childhoods and conduct an honest inventory of themselves and their family so that they might identify and heal core trauma, experience freedom from shame and abandonment, and ultimately become our own loving parents. In my early 20s, I began to look into these groups because some themes continued to appear in my life. And every single time I thought about even simply investigating or reading what they were about, I would use my handy adult child of an alcoholic thinking and voice, and tell myself, you are being such a baby. Nothing is happening to you in this moment. 
pull yourself together. It's not like you died, right? No one killed you. So what are you complaining about? Besides, and here's the best one, other people had it worse. So if they aren't in the rooms and you are, that makes you weak and you are taking up space. My inner child deserves a loud, slow hand clap for that one because I had no tools at the time. None. So that speech sounded really convincing. And it was the first thing I reached for anytime I was meeting my own uncomfortable feelings um, or a completely natural desire for relief or support. And of course, I shut it down. If we feel guilty for having any emotions or thoughts or feelings and we instantly bully ourselves into nothingness, that might be an indication that something is off. And I looked into 12-step groups again when I was in my master's program at NYU. I was in a clinical program and taking a class in group therapy. And for whatever reason, maybe because I am a Virgo or a perfectionist student or because I've never really had an issue with public speaking, it just simply doesn't bother me. I was always asked to be the therapist when we role-played conducting a support group in front of the class. So there we are in a pretty large class, and my group of fake support group members circle up in the middle of the room, and I begin the session. And I ask the professor what our topic should be for the day. And before she can answer, this guy sitting in my circle role-playing says really quietly, Let's talk about alcoholism. And for no reason that I could possibly imagine at all, my stomach dropped. But that mask that I wear when I'm out in the world is a good one. And so I said, great, let's do it. And no one spoke. (laughs) No one knew what to say. All the theatrics from the previous role plays about different topics just weren't happening. As a group facilitator, Part of your job is holding space for silence and discomfort because it creates a unique type of tension where someone will begin to share without being prompted. And the guy in the role play who requested the topic raised his hand and said that he would share. And everyone looked relieved because no one really knew what to say. Addiction seen through a lens of a diagnosis versus an anecdote is not something that many of us are well-versed on. So this guy opens his mouth to speak, and he just begins to cry. And he isn't making much noise, but he's crying with his whole body. And you can just feel the pain radiating off of him. And when he finally finds his words and begins to share, he's not role-playing at all. He's talking about his own experience with the family disease of alcoholism. And it is heartbreaking. And I had never heard someone talk about it like that. And I think most people in the room, including the professor, were simply paralyzed by his raw vulnerability. No one in this class had ever heard him speak. And now here he is really offering up his pain and his truth in a way that we're often told not to. And I want to sit here today and say that I immediately jumped into action and held space for him, and said and did all the right things, I would love to give you my hero edit. Because as an adult child of an alcoholic, that is what I've been programmed to do. I can fix anything. I can clean up any mess. And instead, I was exploding on the inside with something adjacent to 
pure fight or flight rage. If I could have thrown something at him or screamed at him to shut up, I probably would have. I was reduced to my most wounded child self that I didn't even know still existed within me. I wanted to lunge across the group and cover his mouth and scream at him and say, stop, you cannot tell them these things. Stop telling them about us and who we are and what it's like. They're going to know. It's so challenging to see yourself clearly and to have another person be a living, breathing mirror for all the things you hate about yourself. Even today, it's really hard to admit all of that, although I know it's important too. The jewel is in the wound, right? Well, that was my wound in bright, flashing lights being spoken about without my permission in front of a group of people that just seconds ago I had felt superior to. And now they're going to know things about me that I work overtime to hide. And if you're not understanding where I'm coming from, you know, sharing my internal And I want to stress that this was my internal reaction to his story. I didn't throw anything at him. And if you don't get it, that's okay. You don't have to immediately understand what it's like to spend your entire life trying to do anything and everything to hide the secrets about who you are and the things that have happened in your home, only to have it broadcast to the entire universe or a class of graduate students in a way that makes you feel totally naked and exposed. So it was experiences like this throughout my own life that introduced me to the idea that what I experienced in my family of origin was different but not unique, and that there were other people suffering and struggling with the same thing that I was, even though we'd put decades or thousands of miles between ourselves and our family of origin, including the person who had struggled with addiction or dysfunctional behavior. And in my own mind, I thought, I don't need help. I don't have anyone in my life who's currently dealing with that. All of that stuff was a long time ago. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to talk myself out of it. With all of the knowledge I had in my profession, with all of the materials available to me, including books and meetings and online resources, I talked myself out of learning about this because it just hit too close to home. Then, I came upon some resources that I couldn't ignore any longer because they were talking to me about me with shocking clarity. The Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunction website says the following about what the actual problem is. Many of us found that we had several characteristics in common as a result of being brought up in an alcoholic or dysfunctional household. We had come to feel isolated and uneasy with other people, especially authority figures. To protect ourselves, we became people-pleasers, even though we lost our own identities in the process. All the same, we would mistake any personal criticism as a threat. We either became alcoholics or practiced other addictive behaviors ourselves or married them or both. Failing that, we found other compulsive personalities, such as a workaholic, to fulfill our sick need for abandonment. We lived life from the standpoint of victims. Having an overdeveloped sense of responsibility, we preferred to be concerned with others rather than ourselves. We got guilt feelings when we stood up for ourselves rather than giving in to others. Thus, we became reactors rather than actors, letting others take the initiative. We were dependent personalities, terrified of abandonment, 
willing to do almost anything to hold on to a relationship in order not to be abandoned emotionally. Yet, we kept choosing insecure relationships because they matched our childhood relationship with alcoholic or dysfunctional parents. These symptoms of the family disease of alcoholism or other dysfunction made us co-victims, those who take on the characteristics of the disease without necessarily ever taking a drink. We learned to keep our feelings down as children and kept them buried as adults. As a result of this conditioning, we confused love with pity, tending to love those we could rescue. Even more self-defeating, we became addicted to excitement in all our affairs, preferring constant upset to workable relationships. This is a description, not an indictment. And I love that last line, and it's probably one of the most important ones on the entire website. This is a description, not an indictment. For anyone who is raised to exist solely between the polarities of fight or flight, the idea that the world could have any understanding or compassion for what it's like to walk around like a ticking time bomb with all of these feelings inside of you seems impossible. There's a story that I'm very familiar with in my own consciousness that says, if I let you see me, the real me, it's game over because no one could relate to me and no one could possibly understand what I went through or love me as I trip and stumble through my own life while trying to muscle through all of it. One of the best pieces of information available through this website is the one titled, Did You Grow Up With a Problem Drinker? It's something often read out loud at meetings because it provides clarity and reassurance to the people attending, as well as to the newcomer. Uh, that person who just walked into a meeting because a family member went to rehab or their therapist recommended it or a friend dragged them in or a partner gave them an ultimatum. This list is also a helpful resource for anyone in a profession or a role where they're working with families or children. It's definitely the reason why my own guidance counselor was able to so easily identify that I would benefit from attending Alateen. You know, she had an understanding of this list and these characteristics. So here it goes. I'm going to read it. Did you grow up with a problem drinker? Alcoholism is a family disease. Those of us who have lived with this disease as children sometimes have problems which the Al-Anon program can help us to resolve. These 20 questions are designed to help you decide whether you might benefit from attending an Al-Anon adult child group. One. Do you constantly seek approval and affirmation? Two, do you fail to recognize your own accomplishments? Three, do you fear criticism? Four, do you overextend yourself? Five, have you had problems with your own compulsive behavior? Six, do you have a need for perfection? Seven, are you uneasy when your life is going smoothly, continually anticipating problems? 8. Do you feel more alive in the midst of a crisis? 9. Do you still feel responsible for others as you did for the problem drinker in your life? 10. Do you care for others easily yet find it difficult to care for yourself? 11. Do you isolate yourself from other people? 12. Do you respond with fear to authority figures and angry people? 13. Do you feel that individuals and society in general are taking advantage of you? 14. 
Do you have any trouble with intimate relationships? 15. Do you confuse pity with love as you did with a problem drinker? 16. Do you attract and or seek people who tend to be compulsive and abusive? 17. Do you cling to relationships because you are afraid of being alone? 18. Do you mistrust your own feelings and the feelings expressed by others? 19. Do you find it difficult to identify and express your emotions? And 20. Do you think parental drinking may have affected you? So does anyone else feel personally victimized by this list? <laughs> I, my jaw was kind of on the floor the first time I heard it. Uh, so many of these things resonated with me, whether I want to admit it or not. And some of the realizations about this only came to the surface when I began my own journey of deep inner child work. And I even hate saying that phrase out loud because it just kind of makes me cringe, but it is what it is. It's the work I'm doing. And part of that work was taking a personal inventory and seeing what happened in my life, who was involved, what feelings came up, and what my part in it was. And you can read that list and say, well, any of those things could apply to anyone. Sure, I'll give you that. Absolutely. But it's the combination of these things that may let you know that there's a space for you to grieve or process your thoughts, feelings, and fears. And my own experience with all of this work didn't happen all at once. Um, I also don't think that it was designed to be an overnight process because there's definitely a, a coming to of realizations and shedding defense mechanisms only when you're ready. And I think that that's an important message to weave into this podcast, that none of this is going to just be an aha moment. And for me, it didn't happen all at once. It was definitely not designed to be an overnight process. I really feel that there's a timeline that works for you, for your coming to realizations, for you shedding defense mechanisms, and for picking up new ones. And anyone who tries to share that message that it is just, you know, a, a shocking and in-your-face thing and suddenly everything changes, I think it's important to just recognize that that's not how we make long-term changes in our lives. In 2012, I picked up a book titled From Survival to Recovery, and I devoured it. I'll admit that I opened the book and was fully prepared to read it just so that I could tell myself that none of it applied to me. So you can imagine how humbling it was to read a few pages and not be able to put it down. Because even though many of the facts in the stories shared throughout the book didn't apply to me, the feelings did. And they did in such a profound way um, that I was just captivated. And I found it fascinating that some 70-year-old man could write a story in this book about growing up in the family disease of alcoholism in like the 40s. And that he had the same exact feelings and anxieties that I did. I think one of my biggest takeaways from the book is that bravado gets me nowhere. Even though the world almost demands it from me, it gets me nowhere. And more than that, I simply don't need it. The book opened my eyes up to the fact that part of healing is accepting things as they happened, calling them by their right names not trying to obsessively negotiate the past or perseverating on it, and 
showing up in the present with a willingness to develop emotional tools, resilience, sobriety, and practices of self-care. And that's important because self-regulation and self-care are areas where adult children of alcoholics and dysfunction really struggle. And I know that the term self-care has been absorbed by the elite wellness industrial complex, but for our purposes here today, self-care means something as simple as making sure you eat and sleep and drink water. A great example of poor self-care is not making doctor appointments or dentist appointments or having extreme anxiety around this. And I get it if that doesn't make sense to you. But just imagine growing up in a home where caregivers put your basic health needs last and the underlying message was how inconvenient it was to take care of you. The story you begin to tell yourself is that you don't deserve this type of regular or proactive care and you may not even be worthy or deserving of emergency care and that's a really difficult story to step away from. Another wonderful resource to tap into is the ACEs quiz. And the acronym ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. Adverse childhood experiences are potentially traumatic events that occur in childhood before the age of 17. There are 10 types of childhood trauma measured in the ACE study. Five are personal, physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, physical neglect, and emotional neglect. And five are related to other family members, a parent who's an alcoholic, a mother who's a victim of domestic violence, a family member in jail, a family member diagnosed with a mental illness, um, and the disappearance of a parent through death, divorce, or abandonment. ACEs have a tremendous impact on future violence, victimization, and perpetration, and lifelong health and opportunity. And that's really important because the whole world will tell you, you know, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, just make it happen. And with the ACE quiz and all the studies around it are revealing that ACEs are linked to chronic health problems, mental illness, and substance misuse in adulthood. ACEs can also negatively impact education and job opportunities. And that's not to say that you're doomed because ACEs can definitely be prevented and worked with. But I do think it's important to acknowledge and honor the fact that if you've experienced excessive childhood trauma, that there's things that you do have to look out for. The ACE study, the CDC's Adverse Childhood Experiences study, I should say, is the largest and most important public health study that you've never heard of because it uncovered a surprising link between childhood trauma and the chronic diseases that people develop as adults, as well as the social and emotional problems. But this includes heart disease, lung cancer, diabetes, as well as depression, violence, and suicide. The life expectancy of people who score a six or more on the ACE is 10 to 20 years shorter than those without any ACEs. And to anyone who's listening to this and is kind of a little concerned as they reflect back on their own childhood trauma, let me just say I scored a 9 out of 10 on the ACE test. 
which means I should probably be dead by now. But um, I'm not. So I think that the other side of learning about the ACE quiz and all the studies around it are that resilience and strength are also outcomes for those impacted by adverse childhood experiences. Although, while not speaking for the whole team of resilient adult children with alcoholics, I will say that some of us are tired of being strong and resilient. Some of us just need a nap. But if you do take the ACE quiz and you look it up and you are concerned about it, you know, I'm just going to encourage you not to just look at the doom and gloom aspect of it. Look at the other side of it and look at all the things that you can do to shift your outcomes. I think it can be really challenging for adult children of alcoholics and dysfunction or anyone who has experienced severe physical trauma to be proactive about healthcare. And that's why I mentioned it before. I think it's actually really important. But maybe something in us has also prevented us from taking care of ourselves. And while, you know, it's easy to shy away from that conversation, I think it's really important to talk about because when I see it in someone else, I'm reminded of how often I do that to myself, of how often I shy away from that proactive self-care. And, you know, like I said, I got a nine out of 10 already chopping 20 years off of my life. I, I have to be proactive about it and I deserve to be proactive about it because I deserve to be here. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a chapter titled Into Action. And that includes a pretty well-known piece of writing called The Ninth Step Promises. And these promises are offered to the newcomer as to what they can expect to unfold in their life if they get into action and work a program of recovery. So here are the Ninth Step Promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook on life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. And I completely understand if all that sounds like a foreign language and you're still like, what the heck does fear of economic insecurity have to do with drinking? I just know that for people who choose sobriety and recovery through the 12 steps, that these promises are a lifeline. And... 12-step programs are shockingly full of sick people. 
Can you imagine imperfect or deeply flawed alcoholics and addicts trying to be in community and heal through mistakes and missteps and just their humanity? And sometimes it doesn't go smoothly. And there are times when you'll see someone trying to work the promises and just allow the 12 steps to magically unfold in their lives. And it's so tempting to do so. But choosing to work on yourself and do that with the help of a 12-step community is a commitment to working the 12 steps and allowing the promises to unfold in your life. And in the book I mentioned earlier, From Survival to Recovery, they offer their own version of the promises for anyone, whether you're an adult child of an alcoholic or someone in Al-Anon or even in an adjacent recovery program. Anyone who embarks on this journey of unity, service, and recovery through the 12 steps and is also healing from some profound childhood wounds. And I remember pouring over the book from survival to recovery. I mean, I cannot recommend it enough if you're interested in this topic or you feel that it applies to you. And I felt as if someone was speaking directly to me when I read the adult children of alcoholics promises. And those promises sound like this. If we willingly surrender ourselves to the spiritual discipline of the 12 steps and work the program, our lives will be transformed. We will become mature, responsible individuals with a great capacity for joy, fulfillment, and wonder. Though we may never be perfect, continued spiritual progress will reveal to us our enormous potential. We will discover that we are both worthy of love and loving. We will love others without losing ourselves and will learn to accept love in return. Our sight, once clouded and confused, will clear, and we will be able to perceive reality and recognize truth. Courage and fellowship will replace fear. We will be able to risk failure to develop new hidden talents. Our lives, no matter how battered and degraded, will yield hope to share with others. We will begin to feel and will come to know the vastness of our emotions but we will not be slaves to them. Our secrets will no longer bind us in shame. As we gain the ability to forgive our families, the world, and ourselves, our choices will expand. With dignity, we will stand for ourselves, but not against our fellows. Serenity and peace will have meaning for us as we allow our lives and the lives of those we love to flow day by day with God's ease, balance, and grace. No longer terrified, we will discover we are free to delight in life's paradox, mystery, and awe. We will laugh more. Fear will be replaced by faith, and gratitude will come naturally as we realize that our higher power is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I never get tired of reading those words. They are like a prayer that I didn't know that I needed. Um, And this whole episode is not an advertisement for a free support group that actually doesn't need advertisement. It's not a method of diagnosing other people or a way to weaponize this knowledge or just a way to vilify our parents who probably did the best that they could with whatever tools they had. It's really an invitation to let your guard down a bit and be willing to see ourselves and other people with a bit more compassion and understanding. And if you take nothing else from this podcast today, Hopefully you'll walk away with an understanding that we are pretty much unable to compartmentalize our uncomfortable feelings and experiences, even when we want to. 
We can't self-will our way to an optimal life. I know it sounds like a good story to just shut the door on things that we don't want to look at and move on. And I know people have made a lot of money telling you in books and in other materials and in workshops that you can do that. But it just doesn't seem to work. Not for the long run and not for really thriving versus surviving. And if you're anything like me and you want to do that, you want more than just survival, then you might have to work through some things. And when you're ready to take the first step, it's good to know that you're not alone. And that was the point of sharing this podcast for anyone who thinks or feels or is just curious and wonders if, you know, maybe this is something that might work for them. You know, this is your tool and resource. And I've mentioned a lot of things in this episode that you can look up and research on your own. And I really hope you do that. So the name of this podcast is Love Letters and Mixtapes. And the inspiration for that was a desire to write, share, and talk about things that our younger selves needed to hear, whether that was 30 years ago, three years ago, or yesterday. If I was going to write a love letter to my younger self about being an adult child of an alcoholic and dysfunctional family, it would probably go something like this. I know you think that things will never get better. And I know it feels as if the odds were stacked against you from the beginning. And I know that you are tired from holding on to the floor and tired from keeping that mask up to help you walk through the world. And I know that there are days when it's hard to see the higher purpose for all of the hurt, the loneliness, the anxiety, and abandonment that you've experienced. But you are here for a reason. And you have never once abandoned yourself for a reason. You have supported yourself in body, mind, and spirit every single day of your life, even when you felt as if you were failing and flailing. No matter what others around you told you or how they treated you, you knew at your core that you deserved to be here and that you were built for more than just survival, even if you couldn't say it out loud. But if surviving is all you can focus on today, let me remind you of something. When you fly on an airplane, the flight attendant instructs you that in case of emergency, you should put your oxygen mask on first before helping others. This is an important lesson in life because if you run out of oxygen for yourself, you can't help anyone else. If you deplete yourself, you'll have nothing left to contribute to the world. You can't pour from an empty cup, although some of our alcoholic parents have surely tried. So today, let this just be a reminder that you are worthy of investing in yourself, of loving yourself, of supporting yourself, of taking care of yourself, and no one can tell you any different. And until next week, make sure to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast listening platform. Check out this week's playlist on my personal Spotify account and join me on Instagram at loveLettersAndMixtapes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider donating to support this podcast by clicking the link in my Instagram bio.